Welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And Daniel Hogan is in the studio today, helping guide us and assist us all the way. Today, I would just like to first start out by saying thank you for tuning in. And also that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear from entrepreneurs and others who are using business as a force for good. Today, our guest is B.A. Link. And she is the founder and the designer of the A-Linker. In just a moment, B will be with us, and she'll tell us all about what she is up to. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. This is Heartstock Radio. And today, our guest is B.A. Link, and we are pre-recording this on a beautiful, sunny fall day here in my home study <laughs> in View, Montana. And B, hi, where are you joining us from? Hi, Carol. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm calling in from Toronto, the unceded territories of many Indigenous nations. Mm. So it's true, and the same goes here in, in Butte, Montana. Can you give our listeners a little intro here? What is uh, the A-Linker and who you are? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who I am? That is a complicated question in itself. No, no, no. And I love um, that. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, we, we might get to that later. But um, <laughs> uh, My name is B. A-Link. I was born raised in the Netherlands, came to Canada after 10 years international work in 2008 and have been here um, since 2008 and have established the Alinker company. Started in 2011, now five years in the market. What is the Alinker? Physically speaking, it is a three-wheel walking bike with two front wheels, an overarching frame to a smaller back wheel and a seating assembly on top. So you can actually walk on wheels. And I designed the Alinker because, oh, it was actually after a comment of my mom when she said, completely out of the blue when we were walking on some, some marketplace in the Netherlands and we, we passed by some people that were using um, electrical scooters and rollers and then totally out of the blue she said, oh my dead body will I ever use one of those things? My mom being a bit of a stubborn Dutch woman obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But I was curious to come in and what I realized and I had a conversation with her like, well, where did that come from and what do you actually mean? And what was underneath that is that she did not want to, she actually caught herself in her own judgment. She did not want to be looked at as she looked at those people. And then from there, I realized that medical devices emphasize the disability and create a social divide between people with and without disabilities. And I thought that's, that's to me, it's a justice issue, right? So I was like, why are, medical devices, a technical solution for a body with a problem because we treat the moment you have a problem with your body, we treat you as a body with a problem and forget that you're actually a human being that wants to live an active and engaged life. So I set out to 
to, to design the Alinker, to build something so cool that people would love to use it and so cool that it would overcome the difference between people with and without disabilities. And are you an engineer? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that and what you did before developing the A-Linker. <laughs> Again, that's a very layered question. <laughs> I am a certified woodworker. Then I became a restoration architect and I did construction civil engineering, construction supervision. And with that, the 10 years international work was always managing huge reconstruction projects of hundreds of schools or roads or um, medical clinics, that kind of stuff. In countries like Afghanistan and um, Aceh, after that huge tsunami in Indonesia and Sri Lanka or Kosovo or Kenya or the Sudan, uh, mostly. So, yeah. And then those 10 years, that, that lasted 10 years and then I came to Canada. Were you working for your own organization or how did you find these uh, amazing projects? Um, well, I never felt home in the Netherlands and I always wanted to go away from the Netherlands. I, I think at the root of that, there's two things. One, my father died when I was eight. And people disappeared around us, which made me understand as an eight-year-old girl that people choose their own comfort if they're not very comfortable talking about death. They choose their comfort over showing up for you. You can't talk about death in the Netherlands because that's a huge taboo. So I was actually super lonely after my father died. Our family was sort of isolated and not being able to talk about death made us isolated. And then I'm a gender weirdo, I'm, I'm not a typical girl, not a typical boy, but something in between or whatever, but I never found language for who I am. And so I, the, the experience in the Netherlands of feeling the weirdo in a culture where I should be able to be one of the, one of the <laughs> I should understand my own role in my own culture. But I never did. I was always the weirdo, and I didn't understand that. So I think I went into international work. In retrospect, I think I chose to put myself in a position where I was the weirdo, the exception, as a white person in Kenya. I put myself there, so now I can see it coming. But in the Netherlands, I didn't see it coming because it's my culture. So why would I be you know, stigmatized or ostracized or judged? I think those two things motivated to leave the Netherlands. And then I always wanted to go to countries where I felt more purpose, where I would be happier than I would in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, at that time, I felt that people were very much talking about money and more money and status and bigger houses. And I just did not understand what it was about. If you can't talk about or share the essence of life, the fact that we're dying and what are we doing here in the meantime, I, I lose sense of purpose. So, you know, the easiest way to, to get to another country and, and I wanted to go to Africa was to write some missionaries. I'm not religious by any means, but it is the easiest way into Africa if you don't want to go to, through organizations which I didn't know yet. I wanted to sort of figure it out by myself a little bit. So I wrote a few missionaries and one of them in Kenya, I wrote back and he said like, yep, you can come and um, set up a carpentry training here. That's what I asked him. So I set up a carpentry trainer 
training in the slums of uh, Kisumu in western Kenya against uh, Victoria Lake. Yeah, street boys, street girls, and I taught them how to plane raw timber into <laughs> into planed timber because I looked a little bit around there and I was like, that that was in the time that many people were dying of the AIDS epidemic. Pandemic. This is not the first pandemic that we have. And the poor people, people in the slums, could not afford a coffin. And I thought, you're already one of the poorest people, and then the last dignity to you and your family is taken away because your family can't afford a coffin. And that, again, was a justice issue. And I, when I looked around in the market, the raw timber was really cheap, and the plain timber was very expensive. And I thought, huh, I can plane. So I taught street boys and girls to plane raw timber into plain timber, and then we made coffins. Very beautiful, very cheap coffins, but very beautiful for the poorest people to have a dignified funeral, at least. So that's how I got into international work, and then it just grew from one project to the other, and I don't know, and very quickly I was asked to do projects. I got job offers from different countries and different organizations that picked up what I was doing, and then, you know, I never wrote a, a cover letter anymore. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And what were some of those other projects like? Well, in Aceh, after that huge tsunami, I, well, first I went to, to Sri Lanka to, to do the reconstruction, to set up the reconstruction projects of schools. So I established a child-friendly school design for UNICEF that was implementing for UNICEF and worked with the government of Sri Lanka to ban the use of asbestos in the schools as they were being rebuilt. I was there for three months and got back together. We got the first plans for schools, did site assessments, and you know did the tsunami damage assessment. Because in Sri Lanka, it was only the tsunami that damaged the schools. And actually, that was a whole different uh, thing because the, they had and the earthquake and the tsunami. Um, so that was a whole different damage uh, scenario there. And rebuilding scenario, for that matter, too. Um, so after those three months that I set up the whole project in um, in Sri Lanka, hired staff, um, and my colleagues stayed there. The two of us set up the whole project. He stayed there, and then um, I was asked to go to, uh, to Aceh because it was the, the, the damage was so much bigger there. To where, I'm and sorry? To Aceh, um, on Sumatra, in, in uh, Indonesia. When that huge tsunami hit in 2004 at Christmas, right? And so there I built 500 schools, implemented UNOPS projects and, and, you know, safe schools. That that was one of the things I trained engineers and architects to build different schools than what they had built before the tsunami because that was not compatible with the earthquake zoning that had to be adjusted after the after that massive earthquake and ongoing earthquakes after that zone had been um, inactive for 200 years or something. That earthquake marked the earthquake zone again. So they had built completely incompatible buildings for the kind of earthquake damage that happened at that time, let alone the tsunami. 
So I trained the engineers, architects to become the Ministry of Public Works to implement different building standards and different building codes to, to a different earthquake zoning now. Well, people don't want to change, so that was an issue. <laughs> no, yeah, I understand it, but this is how we do it. Like, yeah, mm. and you want to pancake children into a building that's going to collapse in the next earthquake? I don't think so. But anyway, so the <laughs> implementing those things and, and figuring out how to work with people that they're willing to accept different ways of doing things because it might actually be safer for your children. That's always an issue. So that was a big challenge and a very interesting challenge. What, what the challenge is that you're inside a very different culture. And so I'm not the outsider to come and tell them what they need to do. But the challenge for me is to understand what's happening locally. If they talk about local taxes, for example, and you come in as a foreigner and see the local tax systems, i.e. contractors paying off other contractors to get a contract, we call that then corruption. But if you call it corruption, you've got nowhere to go. You don't have an end with people because you don't build relationships. You're the foreigner that judges their system. So my challenge was always like, huh, what are they calling taxes? How is that working? And how can we improve for the sake of children's lives after the next earthquake? <laughs> how can we improve the building standards and get contractors to build at least the quality that I want, but it's needed for the safety. And those are like big puzzles. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. So I actually developed a whole tendering, a, a way to tender the contracts for the schools based on their tax system. But now with the outcome that they got the money that they wanted and I got the quality that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So that's, a win-win. that's just puzzled. Yes. And we're going to take our midway point break here. And in just a moment, we shall be back with B. This is Heartstock. Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today we are speaking with BA Link, and she is the founder and the developer of the A Linker. Hi again, B. Hi. Hi, Carol. <laughs> so, I have a lot of questions about the A Linker, and you shared mm-hmm. your story earlier about the inspiration that your mother gave you. And where did you go from there and how did you develop it? I know that these kinds of projects with products, physical live products, um, can be challenging. Definitely. And it's, it's extra challenging when you're a woman in the field of predominantly dudes doing that stuff. Yep. Um, being a woman-owned and women, woman-led company um, has a few challenges because investors and that kind of stuff is generally uh, male-focused. And to give a little example, there's less than 3% of venture capital money that goes to women-owned companies. We're not a minority. <laughs> and in owning businesses, we're also not a minority. So 
the world is a little bit skewed. And that means that if you're a female entrepreneur trying to set up a business in a technical field as a, you know, inventing a bike and trying to manufacture that, um, there's a few, uh, few challenges that guys wouldn't have. Now, I'm not very adverse to, to challenges. I like challenges. And um, I, I, as I said before the break, like I've done big projects of multi-multi-million dollars building schools in different environments, three and a half years in Afghanistan, for example. So, I've, you know, I have had my share of challenges <laughs> and trying to, you know, find ways to make stuff work. And that's that's always my motivation. Like, how can we make it work together? I know something, you know something, together we know more. You have something, I have something else. And together we can, you know, put that together and not meet on the differences between us, but meet on the things that we have in common. And if there's a purpose that we can both be part of, it's, it becomes easier. So being rooted in my purpose is actually always the starting point for whatever I do. It doesn't really matter what I do. It's always being true to who I choose to be. If I choose to be a kind person, which I did, then being kind is a really challenging thing in this world because you know, being congruent with being kind is kind of a challenge. For example, you go to the supermarket and there's not many products that you can buy um, saying that you're still a kind person because being part of, you know, the industry that does plastic around vegetables is not very kind to the environment. Buying a piece of chocolate, knowing that there's no slave-free chocolate is not very kind. So trying to be kind and being congruent with being kind is, um, is a daily practice of wanting to be aware and wanting that awareness to have consequences for your actions. And you can't be 100% kind when you live in a city because there's many practices that are just not kind to other people, to the environment, to the world. So that's always my daily practice. Like, how am I a kind person? It's not so much what I do, it's who I am, who I choose to be, and then I can do whatever. But it's always how I show up. Because at the end of the day, I want to look in the mirror and like, yep, I like you. I want to go to bed with you. That's sort of what the end of today is for me. And if I can't say that because I haven't been kind as I could have been kind, I don't sleep well. I want to sleep well. <laughs> Does that answer your question or did I go off on a tangent there? <laughs> no, no. I think that that's, that's very important. So were you self-funded or did you eventually find folks that you were aligned with to help? fund this project were you bootstrapped um how do i say that of course yeah no i didn't have any money at the beginning um and, and that's not quite true because i had a job that was an okay paying job uh, when i came to canada i managed a big um, project to produce glass for the new airport in doha with a glass studio in vancouver and that paid okay um so and i had some money saved from the international work because i don't spent much of myself and those salaries are ridiculous in international work. So I self-financed a lot of the prototypes in the beginning. And then at a certain time, my money was running out and I didn't have time to do my job anymore. And I needed more money and time to make more prototypes. So I quit my job 
<laughs> and then um, at a meetup somewhere in Vancouver, I met a guy who said like, oh, I know the perfect investor for you. And, you know, got talking with him, got introduced and, and he became the very first angel and he helped me. I didn't even know what a share in the company was. I had no idea. And then this first guy said like, I could be your mentor too. And he's still one of my best uh, people that, I have around me. There's been angels over time to to come up around us, always at the right time. But I think people are attracted because it's not a business to make money. I mean, of course, we make money as we sell bikes in order to do what we can do. But people are attracted to our business because it's not about making money. It's about everything else that allows us um, or what the Olinker allows us to talk about, a healthcare system we don't have. You know, we have a sick care system. We don't have a health care system. So you talk about stuff that people get attracted to. They're willing to engage with you and they're willing to be part of something because they're attracted to something. And so bootstrapping is one of those scarcity language things that I never use. I, I don't focus on not having money or not having time or not having whatever. I always focus on where can we focus that we become attractive so people are attracted to something. And live in abundance in that way. I don't live in scarcity. I refuse to live in scarcity because that's the system that holds us prisoner in feeling small, living in little segments of, you know, whatever minorities we might be part of. I don't believe in segments. And any other partners uh, have helped along the way. Is Where is mm-hmm. the A-Linker made, for example? Well, in Vancouver, I made the first prototypes, the conceptual prototypes with um, Toby Cycleworks, <laughs> a very special guy who does completely weird in his workshop. And that was perfect for me to figure out if what I had in mind would actually work. Because I'm a woodworker, so I made some wooden mock-ups. And with the wooden mock-ups, I went to Toby <laughs> and Toby. And he said, do you think that that I can just translate whatever you make in wood into aluminum. And I was like, I'm paying you to make the prototype, so better get on it. <laughs> <laughs> we, were always, we were always messing around with each other. You know, the very classical issue between architects and engineers. Engineers think that architects are just full of because they're just designing stuff that doesn't work. And architects think that engineers suck because they're only linear and they go on cheapest and whatever. So it was that classical thing. And we had a lot of fun making those prototypes. And then once the thing worked and the concept was proven, I went to a partner in the Netherlands. I'm from the Netherlands originally, so I know the bike industry a little bit there. And I got introduced to a bike manufacturer in the Netherlands who then introduced us to their counterpart in Taiwan. And we made seven more pre-production prototypes to make it work and affordable and quality. And then you do the engineering testing for weight capacity and all that kind of stuff. So that was with the partner in the Netherlands. And then we're still with the same partner in Taiwan because quality there is really high. And it's a really good partnership. What advice? We've got just about five minutes left here. And I'm wondering what words of wisdom you may have for others in this space They have a great idea. They have a product that will help folks. And they're just starting out. 
We're just starting out. Yes. Well, sometimes I think like if I'd known what was <laughs> in front of me, you would stop. So don't think about the future. <laughs> it's brought up. Yes, it's, it's harder than you I think, don't... right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are crazy people, obviously, because they always see the sunshine. And and then there's all the obstacles that you have to deal with. But just look at the shining sun and just go. If you really have a good idea and you're the right person to do that, and you know that, whether you're the right person or not, and you have to do everything in the beginning. And the joy gets there when you find people, when you have the capacity to, 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 to hire people around you that can do certain things way better than you. And then you can get them to do whatever they are good at. And that then you get a bit of a team and that's really joyful. And then when you break even, and when it's actually starting to run, that's fun. It's a lot of fun. You know, with the linker, people's lives dramatically change from having agency back, independence, um, being able to go out in the boat again, being able to use their legs. It activates your brain. So people say, like, I'm tired after using the linker, but I feel energized. And we have indications that... Um, um, by activating the brain, the brain wants to work right. And so by activating the brain, the brain can reroute or make new neural pathways um, to your legs, for example. And if you sit the whole day, then, you know, your, your brain is not so active as it should be. So the more you activate the brain, the more the brain can actually motor your body again and or find neural pathways around um, lesions of MS in your brain, for example. The lesions are an obstruction for certain traffic, information traffic. But if your brain is activated and it can find new pathways around the lesions, you don't get rid of MS, but you can deal with the symptoms so much better. And that kind of stuff is really exciting to see. You see uh, of course, that people get their life back. We've got people that have MS, and the, I'm thinking about a certain person right now um, Heather, she's around 60 somewhere, barely walks and cannot walk without AFOs, the, the braces on her, around her lower legs. And two years later now, she's running a 50K Marine Corps marathon, for example. That's really rewarding <laughs> to see the difference it makes for people and how other Alinker users get together and do events together and find community and you know, it's it's focusing on who we are and who we choose to be. That's always the crux. And if we choose to be people that want to be in community, we find others and we can have a lot more fun. And then we're ultimately, we're messing with the assumptions about disabilities to the point that a woman a while ago asked me, uh, she phoned me and she said, I'm sorry, I don't have a disability, but can I still be part of your family? Does that work? Can I be part of the community? And I was like, Awesome. This is that, that that was the the biggest compliment that anybody could have given us. Mm. Like apologizing for not having a disability, but yeah. can they please be part of the community? Because isolation is a way bigger problem in our society than the physical that people deal with. Mm. Right? Indeed. So you create community where people are accepted for the weirdos we are. And ultimately, of course, I created this community for myself because I need a community where I can be my own weird me. And other people feel attracted because they can be their own weird them. We're all weirdos. Whoever came up with a mainstream is a system 
that benefits from us feeling that there's mainstream and we're all in little segments of minorities. I don't buy into that stuff. And how might folks find you, B? We've we've kind of exhausted our time, but I know we could go on talking much longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, my name is B. Ailing, B-E, two capital letters. That comes from Barbara Elizabeth, but Barbara or Elizabeth or Babs never worked for me. Those are all gender-specific names. And I was like, huh, B-E, that works. I'm B, I'm just B. That's also my pronouns. So B A link on Facebook, on um, Instagram, on the website, the Linker website. Yeah, um, we're all over the internet. Fantastic! Thank you so much for being on Heart mm-hmm. Heartstock and sharing your story. Well, thanks, Carol, for having me. It's mm-hmm. been a pleasure talking to you. Indeed, this is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and we'll be back next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Thank you, Remy.